You can turn to our sermon text for today then, which is in the Gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In turn to John chapter 1, but in Luke 1 and 2, another common passage read at this time of year, you'll find that, the, that Mary and the angels and the shepherds responded to the news of Christ's birth with wonder, with joy, and with praise. They glorified and magnified the Lord, rejoicing in God their Savior. And I hope by examining John 1, verses 1 through 18, that you'll likewise be moved to share in their wonder, in their joy, and in their praise. So let me read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten, who is God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Dear God, we thank you for the word that you have given, revealing to us great mysteries, wondrous and marvelous things that you have done in your wisdom. We pray that you would uh, give our hearts and minds uh, attention to these things, that they might be stirred to true worship and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In these verses, the Apostle John Uh, introduces the good news of Jesus Christ. This is sometimes called the prologue to the Gospel of John. Uh, It's the introduction to the rest of the book. And uh, the whole book, including this prologue, was written, as he says at the end of the book, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that is the main point. (laughs) 
of the whole gospel, and certainly of this text as part of it. So many of John's favorite words are introduced in these 18 verses. Words like life, light, believe, born, world, son, and father. We'll find repeated, certainly other people use these words too, but John especially seems to like many of these words. Jesus himself uh, speaking of them. These 18 verses are expounded and explained by the rest of the Gospel of John. And so I cannot be comprehensive today. It is a rich passage uh, full of things that could be spoken about for much longer. But I want to summarize these verses with three points. Uh, First, this man who is born is the eternal word. Second, that this eternal word became man. And third, that this incarnate word is the Savior. Why do you and I need a Savior? And why do we need Him as a Savior? Well, this need is alluded to in these verses. God created us through the Son, yet man is turned from the true light and embraced darkness. The world dwells in darkness, but the true light has come. Mankind walks in darkness at odds with God. The world is turned from the true life and dwells under judgment and death. He is condemned. He is under judgment. He is alienated from God. But God has loved the world. He has not left his creation uh, to be left to the evil one. He chose to deliver a people from death and gave them to his Son. He gave this people whom he would save to the Son and said, Son, save them. He sent his Son to deliver them, to bring them life, and to bring them to glory. The one by whom we were given life and light in the first place is the one who now restores the sinner to life and light by his flesh, by his life in the flesh. And so let us consider then, who is this one that is our Savior? This man who is born, Jesus Christ, is the eternal Word. He was born in Bethlehem. He laid in a manger, but he has always existed. He is the eternal Word through whom all created things were brought into existence. Jesus is, as it says, the Word, the Word that was in the beginning. Now, John is not simply referring to a word that's spoken. You know, you might say a word, and it, it's there as, as long as the, the sound reverberates through the air. Uh, but no, he's speaking of one who was, who existed, who is a who, who did things. He does not say, in the beginning, the word came to be, uh, but that the word was, even in the beginning. John seems to be building upon the creation account of Genesis, which opens up in the beginning, and Proverbs 8, which speaks of wisdom personified as one who says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Uh, When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight. A similar concept uh, was found among the Stoic philosophers, who used the same Greek word for word, logos, to describe God as the reason that orders the world. Of course, a different concept of 
God as a more impersonal principle, but uh, had this idea of a word that held all things together. Uh, But John is asserting that the Word was in the beginning, was not an impersonal principle, but was a person who was with God and was God, the only begotten of the Father. He says the Word was with God in the beginning. That means there was a relation between the Word and God. Uh, It describes a relationship, a connection, a relationship that will also be made with terms Son and Father, The Word was with God. Verse 18 is going to expand on this by saying that the only begotten was at the Father's side, or is more literally translated, in the Father's bosom. Uh, The word referring to to a chest. Uh, Someone who is close, near to your heart. Uh, The phrase refers to the closest fellowship. As John the Apostle would lean on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper, reclining against him at the table. Or as the poor man in the parable died and was brought to Abraham's bosom, referring to uh, the fellowship he had uh, in paradise. And so the son is, uh, continually is, in the father's bosom, in closest fellowship with him. At the same time, the word was God. He relates to God, but that doesn't mean he's not God. Lest we misunderstand, it says that he was God. The Word is infinite and eternal, just like the Father, just like the Spirit will be later described in the same gospel. The Word was and is all that God is. And it goes on to say, lest we misunderstand what it means for him to be God, like, oh, maybe he's some kind of lesser God, or, you know, maybe the term's being used metaphorically or something like that. No, he is the one through whom all things came into being. He himself is not one of those things that came into being, because through him, everything that came into being, came into being. Uh, the word made there is, is the word for bring into existence. Uh, and he is not one of those things, but through him, all things came into existence uh, is made very clear. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John's not the only one to say that. It's interesting how many books of the Bible speak of creation through the Son, through Jesus. It's mentioned in Hebrews, it's mentioned in Colossians, it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians, it's mentioned in John. Uh, The Son was at work in creation. It was created through him. The Father created the world by the Word, by his Son. And it says also the Word in the Word was life, and that life was the light of men. It is through the Son that man was given life and reason to begin with. Man has life and reason from the Word, although this has been darkened by sin. It is a gift that has been uh, neglected and, and rejected by man. But that same word enlightens us to salvation. This combination of life and light probably comes from Psalm 36, 9, where it says to, of God, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Of course, Jesus will be called the life later in this gospel, the way, the truth, and the life. And then John also says that the Word is the only begotten of the Father. 
It's a little obscured in the ESV translation. There's a Greek word, monogenes. Um, it translates it as only, uh, although it's traditionally translated only begotten. Uh, and uh, that's a debate, but I think there are good arguments to translate it as it has been traditionally understood. Uh, that it doesn't just mean unique or one and only, but it always uh, its meaning is of an only child, of one who is only begotten. Uh, its use elsewhere in scripture and elsewhere in literature is to those who are only children, not just uh, only uh, one-of-a-kind things. Uh, even the ESV translates monogenes as only son in verse 14. Uh, and so it's referring to one who is only begotten, who is begotten in a way unlike anyone else can be said to be begotten of the Father. Uh, he, related to this is a disputed translation in verse 18. The ESV says, uh, the only God who is at the Father's side. Again, the word monogenes is used there and is better translated, the only begotten who is God, who is in the Father's bosom. Again, saying that just as the Word was God, so the only begotten is the same person as the Word, and he is God, and he is at the Father's side, and he has made him known. So the Son is the only begotten of the Father. He is uniquely begotten. He is the only Son of God, in the sense that he is the Son of God. In this same passage, it says that we have been born or begotten of God, uh, but this is clearly different than the way that the Word is begotten of God, because he is the only begotten. He is the only one to be begotten in such a way as to fully share the same single divine essence as the Father, like Father, like Son, in a way that is uh, analogous but different than any Father and Son uh, among humans because there is only one God. They share the same uh, single, undivided essence. He is begotten in eternity, for God is eternal. He is eternal God of eternal God. But we are created beings. We are said to be begotten of God or born again because we are uh, renewed by his grace after his likeness on a human level. In fact, it is only because the eternal Son of God became man that man might become children of God by adoption, by regeneration, by our likeness to Christ and sharing in his status, since this happens through union with his flesh and blood. So the Son is unique. He is the only begotten of the Father. He was in the, uh, in the beginning with God, and he was God. He is distinct from the Father and the Spirit. He is the Word. He's the only begotten Son, and he's always been that. He was always with God. He was and is in the Father's bosom. In John 17, Jesus mentions the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed and the love with which the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. How is God love if there was no one to love before the world existed? Well, because God in himself is being three persons continually loved one another in the unity of the Trinity from eternity past. But not only is he with the Father and the Spirit in eternal fellowship, but he is eternally the same God as the Father is and as the Spirit is. 
There is only one God, one divine will, one immeasurable and uncreated being. You cannot add to him. You cannot subtract or divide him. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. The Word is God. But there are not three gods. There is one God. This is a marvelous and wondrous thing. It is not that God chose to be that way. That is the way God is from eternity. Because the Word is God, He fully possesses all the divine attributes. He is all that God is. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Son is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He did not have a body before His incarnation, Before he was born of Mary, he had no body, because God is not like a man. He is not a physical being. He is a spirit. He is invisible. He is infinite. As John says in his gospel and epistles, he has three God is statements. God is spirit, God is light, and in him is no darkness, and God is love. And that's all true of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So do not underestimate the Lord Jesus, this one who is born in Bethlehem. Uh, Do not think that he is merely a special man or a superman. Uh, He is the one through whom all creation came into being. The one who walked the shores of Galilee is the one who created the waters, the seas, and the dry land. He upholds even now the universe by the word of his power. And it's this eternal word, this eternal son, that became man. This one, the life, the true life, the one who gave life and light to man in the beginning. He came into the world to give it again to those who had cast it away. Despite your turn to sin and death and darkness, he came to give light once again in a way that would never be thrown away again. The Word became flesh. That's what John says. He joined himself, the Word that is, joined himself to human nature. He did not cast away his divinity, but he took upon himself our flesh and blood that he might be like you and me. He did so in a particular time in history, recounted in Scripture. In a certain place, in a certain town, to a certain woman, it happened. He did not uh, divest himself of his divinity, but he added to his person a true and complete human nature, both body and soul. He took on a mortal human nature. He became like you in every respect, yet without sin. He took on human biology, human desires, a human will, human affections, human thinking, yet all without sin and freely subject to his divine will. He did not come as a superman, He did not come as a man of steel, able to deflect bullets or if they existed. Uh, He did not come as some kind of odd mixture, half man, half God, like a centaur's half man and half horse. But he's God, you know, with a complete divine nature and man, complete divine nature. And yet not two persons. His humanity didn't have a separate person that he joined to himself. One person that has these two natures. He, according to his human nature, got hungered. Uh, He hungered. He got tired. Uh, As a youth, he studied. He grew in wisdom. 
Uh, he, he learned things. He uh, grew bigger. He wept and sighed and sweat in anguish as he approached death. He experienced the fear of death, and he pressed on for the joy that was set before him, entrusting his spirit into his father's hands. He became man so that he might do these things. It was not enough for him merely to take on visible appearance to talk with men as angels have done, but it was essential for him to become one of us, to die our death and to raise us to new life and immortality. So he made this flesh and blood his own. This union of two distinct natures in one person is such a union that we can say Mary bore God in her womb. She was not, of course, the origin of his divine nature, but the one whom she bore in her womb, the one whom she gave birth to, was God. As uh, Paul says in Acts 20, the church was obtained by God's own blood. Not that the divine nature has blood, but that one who is God shed his blood for us upon the cross. The one who was born and who died, according to his human nature, was God. And why did he do it? To give his flesh and blood for the life of the world, to deliver sinners from death. He took on this flesh and blood that it might be yours for your behalf. He took your sins upon himself and satisfied divine justice, dying your death, bearing the wrath of God upon himself. That is the grounds for your forgiveness and your reconciliation with God, the triune God. The devil's greatest weapon was death and condemnation. And so Jesus became a man that he might receive the blows of these weapons, that he might die, that he might be condemned. And he exhausted the power of the devil. He disarmed the devil and rose again and triumphed over him. His human nature is now immortal and incorruptible as the source of eternal life to believers. And so the word became flesh, marvelous words for our salvation. And it says that the word dwelt among us. The word for dwelt can also be translated tabernacled, as in the tabernacle of the Old Testament, God's dwelling place among his people. Jesus is compared to that tabernacle, that tent in which there was the holy place, the dwelling place of God's glory among his people. Jesus now is that glory among God's people. God joins himself to his people through Jesus Christ. John says that we beheld his glory. And he means that literally. I mean, he and the other apostles and eyewitnesses, they saw with their eyes and handled with their hands. They knew Jesus Christ and saw his glory manifested on earth. And he bears witness to what he saw. Throughout the Gospel of John, he recounts of how Jesus displayed his glory through various signs, uh, not only demonstrating his power, but also uh, demonstrating the kind of salvation that he was to give, how his glory was manifested through his own death and through his resurrection so that they could see uh, his hands and feet and confess, my Lord and my God. In the first miracle, the one in Cana, John 2.11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Now, you and I have not seen Jesus, 
Um, we have not seen with our eyes what John saw, but the eyewitnesses proclaim to us what they saw. It has been presented to you in the gospel so that you and I might believe. As John says in his epistle, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, through the gospel, we too might have fellowship with those apostles and eyewitnesses. We might share in the same thing and possess Christ as well through faith. More specifically here, the glory that the Son displayed was the grace and truth of God. While others like Moses had spoken about it, the law came through Moses, he was a minister declaring the word of God, the Son was the embodiment of it. God has now spoken through his Son, being God himself, the perfect, perfect exact representation of the substance of the Father, the imprint of his Father's nature, revealing him on earth. Now, John seems to allude to Exodus, Exodus 33 and 34 and 40. Moses had asked to see God's glory. And God said, yes, I will let my glory, he also calls it my goodness, pass before you. But you cannot see my face, the face of this glory, only the back. And so he goes up on the mountain and the Lord descends in a cloud and proclaims his name, which includes his character. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And goes on. At the end of Exodus, this same cloud covers the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And so now John uses same terms to describe how he had seen God's glory, full of steadfast love and faithfulness, or what he describes as grace and truth. He had seen it in Jesus Christ, who had tabernacled among his people. The revelation of God's glory, his grace and truth, reached greater brightness with the incarnation of God himself for us. And so while you and I have not seen his glory with our eyes as John did, yet it is proclaimed to you, and by the Spirit and through faith, as John will recount later in his gospel, man may now have union with Jesus even now. Jesus still tabernacles among his people by the Spirit, he would send his spirit so that the Father and the Son, too, might make their home in his disciples, that they would dwell in Christ and he in them, giving you life as the vine gives life to the branches, that we might bear much fruit. So yes, he does not walk among us today like he once did, but because of what he did, he may now dwell in us, and from him we might receive grace upon grace. He was not merely a minister and a witness like John the Baptist and Moses, but is God himself the source of grace and truth. And that brings me to the third point. This incarnate word is the Savior. 
He became the source of salvation for those who believe in him. Not for all. Some rejected him. Some did not receive him. Some did not know him. That is made clear in these verses. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He makes believers God's children. He does so by regeneration. You know, they were not born of their own will or their own desire, mustering it up. They were not born by their blood, their descent, did not make them children of God, but rather God made them children of God. They were born again so that they might embrace the gospel and believe. This will be spoken of to Nicodemus in chapter 3. You must be born again, born from above. And not only that, but given a right of children, as the word there in verse 12. Sometimes it's translated power, but right is a better translation of the word, uh, same word for authority. Uh, That you are given the right of children, adoption as children, as heirs, as those with the privileges of being children of God, to approach Him with confidence. So be sure you do not reject the Son, as many of even His own people did. To benefit from Him, you must receive Him. You must believe in his name. Some people neglect it and miss out. Receiving instead the just consequences of their way, for they love darkness more than light. Those who do not receive him remain in darkness, but those who receive him are adopted into God's household and pass from death into life. He does not ask you to earn his blessing or to prove yourself to him in order to gain it, but rather you must forsake confidence in yourself, in your good deeds, in your ancestry, in your desire and status, but you must receive and rest upon Jesus Christ. And in him you may rest. From him we receive grace upon grace upon grace from God, a never-ending stream of divine favor and blessing and all the gifts and Benefits that come from that favor that he shows us, this grace welling up unto eternal glory. He is the life that never ends, that gives eternal life, as he said to the Samaritan woman. He is the bread of heaven, unlike the manna which passed away, but is one to give eternal life. So he gives grace upon grace unto eternal life that never ends. And so the eternal word by whom all things were made, became flesh so that you and I might receive grace upon grace from his fullness. He will never part from his flesh. He will always be human, for he will never forsake his people. Even now he possesses our nature at the Father's right hand, and he will make his people glorious and incorruptible like him when he appears and when we shall see him and behold his glory as he is. Until then, receive him, believe in his name, marvel at the wondrous incarnation, the taking on of flesh of God the Son. Rejoice that God sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This is good news. We need it. We need light. Christ is born. God is with us. So come, let us worship him. Amen. Dear God, we thank you for this great gift that you have not forsaken us, though we have gone astray, everyone, our own ways. 
but that you have laid our iniquity upon this one who indeed was the one through whom all things were made, that we might be remade, that we might be born again, that we might return to you and to your favor, for you love us and have shown us this love in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would continue to conform us to your likeness and to show this grace and truth unto all peoples, that the world might know that you are the true and living God, and that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.